I think it was in fifth grade when the word like took on an extra meaning. I used to, you know, like cartoons and pizza and card games. But there was a new version of like floating around. One day we found out that Michelle liked Justin. And it wasn't just that Michelle liked Justin. She like-liked Justin. Like-like was a whole new ball game. From the way we all talked, you'd think Michelle and Justin were about to open a bank account together. But I think it was just that our classroom collectively understood that they liked each other. In hindsight, I also love that the teachers egged this kind of thing on. They had to think the whole thing was so silly. But let me tell you, there's nothing silly about like-like. Who did I like-like? I'm sorry to all the podcast gossip journalists, but I'm keeping that one to myself. But what's so great about using that word like to talk about a crush is that it shows how in our earliest understanding of these kinds of relationships, we realize that this feeling we're already used to, liking toys and movies, can extend to other people. In other words, we can have opinions about our romantic partners in the same way we can have opinions about anything else. But also, we're not just talking liking. We're talking like-liking. So what special roles do our feelings about a romantic partner play? Sounds like a job for opinion science. You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how we talk about them. I'm Andy Luttrell, and this week I talked to Jim McNulty. He's a psychology professor at Florida State University, and he studies close relationships. One of the things he's interested in is borrowing from the psychology of people's attitudes toward all kinds of things, and applying those concepts to help us understand relationships. In other words, what does it matter that we like our spouse? Can we say we like our partner, but secretly feel otherwise? And what does any of it mean for the relationship itself? This is a nice follow-up, by the way, to episode 83 of this podcast with Russ Fazio, where we talked about how our opinions can spring to mind automatically. And the more quickly they spring to mind, the more influential they tend to be. So let's see how our feelings about a romantic partner can spring automatically to mind, and why it matters. So I I, I thought a reasonable place to start was to set the foundation right away, uh, given that a lot of the work that you've done, especially what I'm excited to talk to you about, is on what you call automatic partner attitudes. And so, like, what are those? (laughs) What, What does that even mean, to have an automatic partner attitude? Yeah, so uh, it's a great question. The way we think about it is that everybody has these immediate, spontaneous feelings towards their partner um, uh, that turn out to be positive and negative. Um, each experience we have with our partner gets encoded and, and remembered as an association. And so we have this really large network of associations that involves our positive experiences that have led to positive feelings and our negative feelings. Uh, and um, it gets activated whenever we're thinking about or interacting with our partner. Um, and uh, ultimately, people might use those feelings to infer their own beliefs about their satisfaction and their relationship. Uh, but we also think there's a bit of a disconnect there that, that we can talk about. But essentially, they're the same types of uh, attitudes that people have been studying with implicit measures in social psychology for, you know, what, 30, 30 years now. Um, and we capture them in a very similar way. We, we just have people reacting to um, positive and negative stimuli uh, immediately after seeing pictures of their partner. So uh, we sit them in front of a computer. We... Uh, First, we take pictures of the partner uh, that we use in this task. Uh, and essentially, we just have flashes of their partner that appear on the monitor for about a third of a second. They can see it. It's very quick. They know what it is. They know it's their partner. And then their job is to use a key on the keyboard to indicate whether the word is positive or negative. 
to the extent that they feel good about their partner, it should facilitate the responding and categorization of good words um, and inhibit the responding of bad words. And then if they have bad feelings towards their partner, uh, it should facilitate the responding to bad words. We find actually that partners res- facilitate responding to both. Uh, we have somewhat am- ambivalent feelings towards our partner. Our ultimate question so far has been, what's the net difference between those two? Most people, you would hope, have mostly positive feelings. Turns out that's not necessarily always the case. Um, But in terms of uh, a listener trying to think about what does this mean for me, uh, is is just think of your partner, see your partner, look at a picture of your partner and try and feel the feeling that that you have. And for a lot of people, it's a warm, fuzzy feeling. Immediately after an argument, it's probably negative and that can switch around, but there's probably an average feeling that that people go about the day with whenever they think about or encounter their partner. And so we borrowed this. uh, My my colleague on this is Michael Olson, who's a a student of Russ Fazio. And so this is Russ Fazio's paradigm for studying uh, racial attitudes. Um, And we just thought, you know, people have attitudes towards everything and particularly strong ones towards a partner. Uh, and maybe we can adopt this. And so I got with Michael when I first went to University of Tennessee. We started a longitudinal study of couples and uh, he and I decided to to create this task. And so we did and we put it in at the very beginning of the longitudinal study. It was going to be a four year longitudinal study. Uh, so we developed it, put a lot of work into it, put it in the study and then well, we had to wait for the data to come in. And so four years passed and essentially uh, I'm keep going. I'm like, you know, I got to I got to look at that. I got to look at that. And so I just, you know, had Michael uh, form the scores and let's look to see, does it do anything? Does it predict the trajectory of people's uh, happiness over time? Because that's one of the main things we want to know is how happy do people stay? And we ask them every six months, how happy are you now? How happy are you now? And we find differences. Uh, lo and behold, this this index predicted how happy people stayed over the four years. Uh, and so um, thought about that. I didn't know exactly what to do with it. And I pondered it for a little bit. Um, and I, I switched jobs around the time. And I came here to Florida State. And I was just uh, one of the nice opportunities of being here is you get to talk to a lot of other social psychologists. One of them was Roy Baumeister at the time. And I'm sitting there talking to Roy about it. And he's like, oh, that's amazing. You should send that to science. I'm like, okay, well, uh, I'd been working on a psych science paper at the time. I was like, yeah, maybe I'll aim higher. Send it in. Sure enough, it got accepted. Uh, and so we've been working on that ever since. And the, the cool thing was that we also measured at the same time that we did this implicit measure, we asked people their attitudes using a semantic differential and that self-report didn't do anything. Uh, mostly because it was extremely positive and skewed for most people. You don't get much variance when you ask people. And the, the uh, I should mention the baseline of the study was the beginning of people's marriages. And so they had just gotten married. You asked them how happy are they? They're like, well, I just got married. I'm very happy. I like this person. But this measure, yeah. So that, yeah, exactly. This measure uh, differentiated uh, among those presumably who had these more negative automatic feelings that ultimately we think played a an active role in um, the relation the deterioration of their relationship feelings. We think that, and that's what we've been looking at now is what do they do. Uh, and the attitude literature, as you know, is full of uh, the idea that they should predict behavior. They should predict perceptions. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And so that's what we're, we've been looking at now is, is uh, well, two things. One is where do they come from? And we verify that oh, they do seem to come from people's previous experiences, uh, which I can talk about that, too. But the other angle we've been looking at is and then what do they do moving forward? So that's sort of how I got started in this in this domain. It's funny you mentioned the like how long it took because I was reading the, the science paper yesterday, and it says like, oh, we tracked people over these years, and you're like, oh my god, that's like a long time before this paper came out. And then you go, oh yeah, like it took you had to do that for four years, right? So they're getting married in 2006, 
you're tracking them for four years. Then you got to figure out like what to do with these data. And it's not until what, 2013 yep. or so that this paper comes out. And you go like, oh yeah, these people who got married all those years ago, this is what happened to them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. And, and so just to summarize and make sure that I understand, basically what this, this is sort of like the first study that you have where you were looking at these automatic partner attitudes, right? Um, and so it's a bunch of people who just got married. They get this kind of, computer game basically <laughs> with pictures of the person they just got married to and uh through that you can sort of suss out like for some people when they see a picture of their new part their new spouse it like automatically activates very strong positive feelings more so than ne any negative feelings other people are gonna have like positive feelings that are activated by their spouse, but also negatives. And and maybe that kind of degree of positivity relative to negativity is a little weaker for them. And so it's the people who see their new spouse and have automatic positive feelings as a consequence that go on to be happier over the next four years compared to those who have middling, <laughs> let's say, automatic reactions to their new spouse. Yes, and it's the difference between the positive and the negative. And, and we've looked sometimes to see, well, is, what if you look at the positive alone? You just take that index of how people respond to the positive words. And what if you look at the, the negative words? Um, each index doesn't really seem to do too much by itself. It's only in consideration of the other one. And, and I've thought about that. And it's in order to understand a relationship, you can't just understand the negative right? I mean, how much negative do you have and how important is that? Well, it matters how much positive. Some people have a lot of negative, but they have a lot of positive to balance it out. Some people don't have much negative, uh, but they don't maybe have so much positive either. And so it's 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 really got to know the amount of, of both in order to understand um, how it's going to affect uh, the relationship, because there are these two competing uh, attitudes, essentially, each time um, that, that, that people think about their partner. I, I want to also highlight the part about how the simple question about how much you like your partner wasn't really doing anything. So you call this a semantic differential. You can think of this as just like, when when you ask me, how much do you like your partner? Basically, right? Yeah. Like openly. Basically, yeah. And I say, I like this person very much. It turns out that's, in that study, I mean, the correlation was actually zero, <laughs> which was incredible, right? Yeah, it was. It like, was. How much I say I like my partner has nothing to do with my automatic reaction to seeing their face, right? Because it's pictures, right? In the, right. In the implicit measure. Yep. Uh, yep, exactly. I, I imagine. Uh, and it's actually about that predict predictive as well, I mean, hmm. of, of how I am going to be happy down the road, because it's it's sort of, everybody says that. Is that what it is? It's just like a ceiling effect, like everyone just, the it's off the charts? Or is it really just that like what you say in response to that question isn't meaningful? So, uh, I mean, that, that's... There's a lot of interesting questions here. I think that's one of them. And, and that's what we're trying to, one of the things we're trying to figure out is what exactly are people saying? Uh, my latest thinking is that it's, it, that's an indica indication of their level of motivation. So I don't think it's meaningless. Um, but it doesn't necessarily tell you, uh, what my actual feelings are. It may tell you more about what I want them to be. And it's probably a combination between what I want them to be and how much I can convince myself that that's true and a sort of motivated reasoning sort of uh, uh, way. Have you ever looked at that discrepancy as a predictor? Like for people who, who are wildly off, because if the correlation is zero, these are these could be lots of things. Like some people are going to report liking their partner just as much as these automatic measures say they do. Other people are going to give wildly different answers on the two different kinds of measures. And so I wonder, right, if it's motivation, if it's like, <laughs> I want the world to be different than it is, that's meaningful <laughs> compared to someone who goes like, I even say I dislike my partner just as much as I want to. <laughs> uh, like that feels weird, but it's actually, it's consistent at least. Yeah, we've, we've one way that we've looked at this and not very much, we have not, uh, we have more data now uh, than the first time we, we looked at this, but we looked at the interaction between the two and didn't really find much. Uh, but other ways of trying to look at that uh, difference uh, would be would be meaningful, because I think you're exactly right. That there should be a difference for people uh, among people when you have those people in those different 
uh, quadrants. People who uh, say I'm very happy and their automatic attitudes indicate they are versus people who say they're very happy and uh, and don't. I don't. There's probably not a lot of people that say I'm not happy uh, <laughs> and their automatic attitude is extremely positive. Um, but there certainly are, are are some people who say I'm not happy and their attitudes indicate such. Mm. So I think the interaction would be kind of an interesting way to to, to consider that. And now we've got a few more uh, longitudinal data sets where we could maybe mm. get a little more power to look for that interaction. Mm. So um, in terms of you mentioned sort of where are these automatic reactions coming from? They're in the moments. And I'm curious how stable they are. Do you have a sense of that? Like. Do people, are people pretty consistent when they have these automatic reactions to their partner? So one of the problems that we run into is, uh, and this is a little bit more um, high level, but the reliability of this particular implicit measure is not great. And so um, we like it conceptually, but we've been working on trying to, to refine it, maybe use a different implicit measure. Um, the test retest reliability, they're correlated, but they're not strongly correlated. Um, and is that the phenomenon or the measure? We want to know. <laughs> uh, I, I'm guessing what I think is that there's a lot of fluctuation around a, a fairly stable mean. But at any point in the day, you can move from that mean based on your mood, your experiences with your partner, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I, I, I just sort of phenomenologically imagine that people are going through a day and all things being equal, they just relate to the, their mean attitude. But um, newer experiences might drive the variance a little bit. And, and so um, I'd like to look at that. There's some, some data coming out of another lab suggesting that they, it takes rather sizable events to change the attitudes, the, the automatic attitudes, uh, or the accumulation of a, a few similar types of experiences. Um, but I think once that happens, they do sort of uh, tend to move a little bit. It makes me wonder too about like where these are coming from. You said the kind of these are an amalgamation of experiences, and like how much do we know about that process? Like the predictor, the antecedents to the thing that pops in my head when I see my partner. Yeah, it's a great question. There's a couple different studies, uh, some of which we've done, and some of which have been done by other labs. So that helps verify uh, at least somewhat that what's going on. But it does seem that they're linked to both positive and negative experiences. And what's cool is that that research shows that they're more strongly linked to those experiences than are people's self-reported attitudes. So when something bad in the relationship happens or something good in the relationship happens, it seems to move the automatic stuff a little bit more than it moves the more explicit self-report stuff. People keep saying things like, well, no, I'm happy. Um, and we even found when good things happen, it didn't move the uh, the, the self-reported attitudes, possibly because there's a little bit of a ceiling effect. People are already saying they're extremely happy. Uh, one of the things we looked at was sex. We looked at just, we accumulated a number of times people had sex over the course of a couple of years. And uh, it turned out that that predicted their automatic attitudes but not their self-reported attitudes. We did a follow-up study to look at what's going on there, and it seemed to be that the sex did predict people's self-reported attitudes when they believed sex was important to relationships. So it's it's those self-reported attitudes are, are more based on people's deliberations and their stereotypes and their desires, um, their, their scripts about what a relationship is, Whereas the automatic attitude is, is maybe a purer uh, representation of the actual events themselves. Another lab looked at arguments. Uh, people had accumulated a number of arguments people had over some time and showed that that predicted the automatic feelings, not so much the self-reported feelings, though. Hmm. That's coming out of Sandra Murray's lab. Okay, gotcha. Um, is there like a, a precedent for thinking about partner attitudes in general? Like it would seem like that is like kind of the fundamental <laughs> to, to understanding relationships. It's like, how much do I like this person? Has that been a common perspective or it's not really until these automatic measures came around? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, the common metric that people usually use is, is self-reported relationship satisfaction. That is sort of the, the ultimate DV in this, in this literature for a lot of people. 
Uh, and I situate that automatic partner attitude as maybe the, the primary predictor of that, uh, eventually based on the, the, the science paper and, and some other things. And so I, th- I think it's a critical variable to think about. But possibly the reason it's not been looked at so much is because it's a difficult thing to measure because when you ask people, they oftentimes just tell you, yeah, of course I like my partner. Uh, maybe if you ask people differently, you know, what are the things about your partner you don't like? People would feel a little bit freer to, to say. Um, but so far, there's not been a, a, a lot of work looking into that as, as this sort of primary uh, uh, predictor of relationship development. The odd thing, though, is like relationship satisfaction is a self-report measure also, right? Like mm-hmm. people are yeah. feeling free to say, <laughs> I don't feel great about this relationship, even if for some reason there's baggage around saying, I don't like my partner. So like, because part of me yeah. is wondering how different are these really? Like, what is relationship satisfaction, if not the degree to which you like your partner? You have positive regard for your partner. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm a little puzzled by, like, what the difference is between these two and why you get these kind of weird, wonky effects on self-reported attitudes towards your partner. But we're not as concerned about that when it comes to when we ask people about relationship satisfaction. So I, I think that it depends when you're you're asking people, and I think for a lot of people you get the same types of biases uh, that they will tell you. And so in that the the, the longitudinal study I was telling you about, well, we also had self-reported attitudes towards the relationship just after marriage, marital satisfaction measures, and they're super high, and there's and they're there's ceiling effects, and they're skewed. Over time, people eventually start to admit that they're not happy. But I think before they admit that, there's there's um, something interesting happening that we ultimately want to capture. And I think that is people kind of gaining insight into this attitude because the attitude is I, – I think the attitude is, is negative before people – tell you that the relationship is, is negative and sometimes maybe even way before uh, like when people are getting married they've gotten married they're obviously happy enough at an explicit deliberative level um, but you do hear stories about people oh it's in the back of my mind I always questioned I, I knew it and, and so that's I wonder if we're if we're tapping and that's why I'm so interested in it because I think that there's this opportunity to sort of see what's going on underneath the hood. Uh, and so one of the studies that we've we've done to try and get at this, uh, we're doing more now, but um, we had a paper a couple years ago in, in JPSB with my student, Lindsay Hicks, where we basically just tried to look at the association between the automatic attitudes and relationship satisfaction. Uh, it's on average, it's close to zero. And so study one of that paper was a meta-analysis of all the correlations out there. And I think the correlation was 0.04. Like virtually nil. This is between deliberate, explicit attitudes toward your partner and relationship satisfaction, right? That's what you're saying? Exactly. Yep. Yep. This is, no, this is between, yeah, implicit attitudes towards my partner. So the automatic, the measure of automatic attitudes. uh, Yeah. The implicit measure and then the explicit measure. Even that's And that was what's zero. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Except uh, when we started um, toying with people's motivations. So in one study, uh, this I think is, is very cool. We paid people $200 to be accurate. Uh, and so we told them about the task. Uh, we said, here's what the automatic attitude measure does. Uh, how feel, how, how strongly are your feelings towards your partner and positive and negative? Um, uh, and, ha- and so we, and then we paid them to be the most accurate. And we saw correlation there that was different from the other studies we had done. Uh, and so as soon as people are otherwise motivated, normally people are motivated to tell themselves and, and in the audience that'll listen, I guess, how happy they are. But when you pay them 500 bucks to be accurate, so they do something different. They, they access those feelings. Now, whether they're just for the first time admitting to them to themselves or just for the first time admitting it to an audience, we don't know that yet. 
but there does seem to be something different that happens when you motivate people to be accurate. Which is helpful because it suggests that these automatic measures are not picking up on something unconscious, right? Like, I I dislike my partner and it's locked away in a lockbox in my brain and I'll never know that I don't have a uh, positive regard for them. You go, no, if I if I pay you the money, <laughs> you can go like, eh, I'll, no, let me tell you what I really feel. Exactly. And I think that's so fascinating because they'll take the 500 bucks and admit they're they're not necessarily happy. But they got married. <laughs> That's pretty high motivation too. But, but there's something. There's just something interesting going on there. Um, and then the other thing that we've thought about that might be related is well, that takes a lot of cognitive effort to do that potentially. And so we've looked at stress. And the other part of that uh, paper with Lindsay Hicks looked at the extent to which when people are under stress, there's also a stronger correlation between their implicit and explicit. Uh, attitudes because they're not able we we think because they're not able to to convince themselves otherwise they don't have the working memory capacity whatever it is that that people that allows people to do these mental gymnastics uh and so i've often wondered well maybe we should really stress people out pay them money to be accurate right before they get married because i think a lot of times maybe people make the wrong decision uh if you see people have these feelings but they're not necessarily admitting it to themselves or others what the feeling is might not be clear to people. If I, I mean, imagine you go home every day uh, and you sort of have this negative sense. Well, do you not like your house? Do you not like your pets? Do you not like your kids? Do you not like your partner? Do you not like the job you just left? Who knows? But eventually people might start to put two and two together. And it just sort of takes time for people to start to say, ah, I finally figure out the common denominator and it's you. Uh, and that's how I, I, that's how I look at how people sort of figure out these automatic feelings. They're activated, they're there, but they're like, ah, it's not my partner. It's not my partner. It's not my partner. And then eventually, okay, maybe it is. It, it makes me think too, that, that accuracy is only one of the motivations that we can have. Um, and people stick with a lot of beliefs for self-image and social reasons too, right? Like we have this go along to get along. I don't want to look like I've made the wrong call. So I'm going to dig my heels in so that I can save face. And I, you know, it could be that that people are uh, aware of their partner attitudes that are negative, but nevertheless, like the over, the social overhaul, the self-image overhaul it would take to actually modify uh, that part of your life. It's just so overwhelming as to keep people grounded there, um, which may not be the same as like predicting emotional well-being, the kinds of things that you're often looking at. But in terms of that question of mm-hmm. like, what, why are if I can pay people and they become accurate, why would they still get married? Presumably because you know knowing their feelings isn't the only reason they got married or didn't in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And for, for for a lot of people, for especially while they stay, I mean, it's difficult to get out of a relationship. There's lots of uh, entanglements, particularly as you have more and more investments like children and fi- joint finances. And so those things can also motivate people to just, you know, grin and bear it uh, and to put on a smile. Uh, and, and I think that's probably also going on. I would love to find ways to tease apart. You know, that's the ultimate question. Are you just lying to me or are you also <laughs> lying to yourself? Okay. Uh, and so, yeah, that's a really good, good question. The other thing I wondered about the disconnect sometimes between these automatic partner attitudes and these relationship outcome measures is like, are there um, pressures to be kind to another person? Like, in other words, I think people just would go like, well, I'm not going to say this person is horrible. And yet, like, I'll accept responsibility and say, like, I'm personally not enjoying this or this isn't going well for me. Mm-hmm. And so there's like a pressure not to deliberately disparage another person, but people can feel more open to saying, honestly, like, for me, though, it's not a relationship that's very healthy. Um, and that you could you could like someone full well, but be like, but I don't, <laughs> don't want to have this particular life with this person. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that happening. In some cases, 
if you sort of think about the stereotypical troubled relationship, though, it seems that there's more <laughs> blaming the other people. I think there's a classic um, study um, showing that um, you ask both people whose fault the divorce was, and they both they don't blame themselves; they blame each other. <laughs> it's not me; it's you. <laughs> um, it's not me; it's you. But I, but I agree with you in in. I think it's when you have there's a threshold, maybe where if you're above it, you're like, okay, I'm not going to disparage my partner; I'm not going to disparage my partner. But as soon as you go below that, then I think people are are willing to to uh, pull the cord on that. And that's another one of those issues of what what exactly is that happens? What is that threshold? And 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 uh, can people go back from there? Has there been any work applying this automatic kind of measure to the relationship itself rather than to the other person? Uh, not yet that I've seen. We're we're working on something um, where we're just basically going to have people view the the both of them sitting on a couch together uh, in the same manner, and we're, we're interested to see. Um, and we'll also have attitudes towards the partner and attitudes towards the self. In that study, and so we can try to tease apart whether the the relationship is more than just the sum of the attitudes towards the two people, which I presume it is, and that might be the most important uh, variance uh, in a sense. Um, yeah, it's hard to know. Were you for, in your whole journey in this world? Uh, you were a relationships researcher first, right? That's my understanding. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Before you got messed up in this world of <laughs> automatic social cognition, where 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 were you headed? And I'm I'm presuming some of this is still around in your lab, but like out zooming out a little bit, like where does this fit in your bigger picture? It's it's funny because it, it actually fits pretty well within the bigger picture. Was the bigger picture was trying to understand how happy people become unhappy, which is an interesting question. And it is a social cognitive one. I've always been very fascinated with social cognition. And most of what we see suggests that people are able to defend whatever belief they want, uh, almost, almost to a fault, uh, and actually many times to a fault, uh, whether it be prejudice or self-esteem, political attitudes, religious attitudes, they're pretty stable. And we have all these tricks up our sleeves to keep them stable. But relationships is a unique uh, opportunity, I think, to look at when strong beliefs actually do change. And so my hope ultimately is that uh, all the inner groups research uh, is informed by some of the things that, that we're doing and other relationship scientists are doing to understand how how beliefs actually do change. Because then maybe you could set up situations like, oh, okay, well, here's how you can take that information and maybe uh, learn to decrease prejudice. Uh, learn to therapy therapists could learn how to change people's beliefs about themselves that are they're negative because there does seem to be a special case where beliefs are changing almost more often than they're not uh, in terms of if you think about it most people have multiple romantic relationships that fail maybe one that works and so it's almost like stability is the exception rather than the rule so that's always been my my thinking and I, and I feel like this looking at this automatic attitude, is an opportunity to understand that that does cut across all these different domains. And so that's mainly what I'd been been doing, but I had been looking at it from a standpoint of, well, who declines? Let's see if we can figure out who are the ones who who have these declines in satisfaction. And, and we were looking at the behaviors that people exhibit, and we were also looking at uh, some ways of thinking that are maybe not always adaptive, explaining things away. It's a good thing to do if it's a minor problem, but if you're explaining away big problems, it's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, and so that was a lot of stuff I was doing before this. Uh, and now uh, it's it's been occupying a lot of my my time because it's pretty neat. To the point about like how much this can inform other things, I kept wondering how well this applies to just any relationship. So I, I get the sense that you're mostly interested in romantic relationships, but at this, by the same token, like when I think about my mom or my neighbor or my coworker, some automatic reaction happens that I have sort of a more favorable or unfavorable feeling probably has something to do with our long-term relationship, <laughs> both before I'm coming to this thought in the moment and also what the future of our relationship is. 
does it seem, I guess I, the way to turn this into a question is, uh, is there anything unique about romantic relationships that puts them on a different playing field than other kinds of relationships when it comes to the role of these automatic reactions? Or is it really just like one version of a million kinds of relationships we have? Yeah, no, I know. I, and I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's just you know, there's an interdependence continuum where some of these relationships, the outcomes are more interdependent. And this is just extremely high on that, higher than anything else that we generally experience. And that's where all the differences are, or whether it's categorically different. I tend to think it's just more extreme. Uh, and maybe the fact that it's more extreme is the is the reason that it can be volatile. Um, there are sort of external pressures that are different on these kinds of relationships uh, that, 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 you know, keep people motivated to maintain them. And, and um, ultimately, I think they're, they're very similar. The, the one, I mean, the biggest differentiator is, is people have sex with their partners. And so if you're really looking for something that makes it categorically different, that, that, that might be it. I don't quite understand how sex would change the way an automatic attitude forms or functions though. So I, I think that that's a difference, but I don't think it, ex it makes re these relationships categorically different than other mm -hmm. ones. Yeah. It might, it might affect those self-reported feelings more, like you said, because people have these theories about like, what is it that makes me, wh why am I supposed to like this person? <laughs> uh, and the same information could be weighted differently depending on what this relationship is. But at the automatic level, you go like, well, for whatever reason, <laughs> when I see your face, I think mostly good things or I think mostly bad things or I think a mix of both of those. Uh, and regardless of who you are, like that's going to affect how we relate to each other. Um, and, and it could be that like, you know, it's about ease of disengagement, maybe. Like if it's my neighbor, I could go like, well, I just won't talk to you and it's fine. <laughs> but if it's your parents, you go, well, that's I don't have the same escape hatch. It doesn't. There's there are other things going on, uh, and that again doesn't mean that romantic relationships are special because at different moments <laughs> there's a different degree of uh, how easy it is to disengage. But yeah, I was just wondering as you were yeah. as we were talking only now, I was like, yeah, what is is there anything that makes this different from the feelings I get when I see anyone's face? Yeah, yeah. I mean, another slight another difference, and this could be related to the the, the sex angle, is that. Uh, oftentimes people might develop their attitude very quickly, even without having much information about somebody. We get attracted to somebody. And to the extent that that starts a process of selectivity uh, that makes it um, a different kind of attitude, maybe just a stronger one uh, is all I can really think, more accessible. So you talked about how the self-reported attitudes are kind of potentially like this product of reasoning and and waiting I, I wonder if it's the same thing with with the automatic ones too so are there certain like you say like immediate physical attraction like are there are there certain uh inputs that are more direct influencers of our automatic attitudes than other things such as these like emotional experiences you've written a little bit about like is it this first experiences i have with you or the most recent one that right. i have with you um, do we have a good sense of like what is most pushing our automatic attitudes toward people? Um, I, we don't have a, a great sense. One one thing that we looked at was, um, uh, and I, I, I'm trying to remember the exact findings, but um, when we were looking at sex, orgasm seemed to be an important thing. Uh, and the reason we thought to look at that was that, that this, we think of them as a, an association between my partner and how my partner makes me feel. And so really uh, arousing emotionally evocative experiences. And so, you know, you're talking about really fun times with your partner, uh, including sex, but not limited to that. And then also really not fun times and very unpleasant times uh, that also get paired. So all the fights uh, and they accumulate and they're just that sort of, the, the feelings that we have. And so I, I think it's a lot about the emotions. The beliefs that we have, the, the sort of features that a partner has, oh, my partner's intelligent, uh, my partner's 
um, you know, makes a lot of money, whatever it is. Those might be a different kind of input uh, that's more factors into the deliberative logical. I mean, if you think about it as a sort of affective and a logical system, I think that that might be part of it. And and so that could also explain a little bit why they're disconnected sometimes and also why the automatic one ultimately wins out because we're emotional people and that ultimately guides us. That's some sort of a broad way of thinking about it. Particularly when the outcome when the outcome is one that hinges on those kind of less deliberative then maybe that's a more we go with our gut. <laughs> exactly. And that's what I think, you know, when you think about relationships and you think about relationships that are I, I, I mean, I was thinking about relationships are struggling. You always think about, oh, well, there there's arguments and there's heated arguments. And people say things that they don't ultimately intend to say. And maybe those happen more at night or when people are drinking alcohol or when people lack sleep or et cetera, et cetera. Uh, even when people are hungry, I've heard, you know, the, the hangry uh, comments. And I, and I think that's because that's when I'm relying on my automatic attitude. And so ultimately, there's always going to be times in your relationship when you're having to rely on that automatic attitude. Your neighbor, you've disengaged from your neighbor. So you're not hanging around with your neighbor when you're, you know, you know, tired and and hungry and, and drunk. And so you're not just saying whatever comes to your mind, whereas you are probably forced to, to do those things with your partner sometimes. Uh, and by the same token, the, the positive also comes out in that way. Uh, and that's one of the interesting things we found getting back to the idea of stress there. This was like a trend and we're not necessarily sure we haven't replicated or anything, but there was some evidence that for, I think it was for men when they were under stress and they had positive attitudes, it was actually almost better to be under stress. Men who had positive attitudes, uh, because the stress unleashed that automatic and it made them rely on it more where men the stereotype is you know i'm not going to be affectionate i'm not going to do those kinds of things but when i'm tired uh and stressed and i have really positive attitudes that's where where people are relying on the automatic which could be a good thing which is interesting to think about anything uh good coming out of a relationship under stress but if the two people have automatic attitudes and we did find that stress was not bad for those people and for there was even some evidence that it might be good for men it, it also reminds me i was going to ask you about uh ambivalence here too so um yeah you know s a, a much of your work as you said is looking at like relative to how negatively i feel how positively do i feel but that means I feel both positively and negatively at the same time toward the same person. Um, and, and I've been wondering, like, th there's an argument that that is a problem to be ambivalent because it means you have, like, a hefty dose of negativity mm -hmm. towards your partner. On the other, it mm -hmm. means that, like, that's a realistic <laughs> appraisal of a, a situation where you go, like, yeah, like, bad things happen. I don't ignore them. But it's about, like, how much I'm weighing the positives against the negatives. So I, I guess open open uh, the field to talk about the role of ambivalence towards your partner in a relationship. Is that is it a good yeah. thing or a bad thing? Yeah, well, we have one paper on this. Uh, Rudy Four took the lead on this one, looking at ambivalence uh, scored by exactly that, taking the people at the really high and the really, uh, the really positive and the really negative. Uh, the one thing that we found there uh, was that those people tend to be more motivated to to work on the relationship, uh, which makes sense because they have the positive that that um, keeps them engaged. They're not going to disengage from their relationship, um, but they do have the negative that they the signaling that there's something to work on. Uh, and so, if I have only high negative and low positive, well, am I going to bother working on this? If I have only only positive and very little negative, there's not really a ton maybe I have to work on. But it was when those two things were high that people seem to be motivated to actually make improvements. And so there's a case where ambivalence might actually be uh, a good thing. Now, it doesn't feel great, but, um, you know, just because it doesn't feel great doesn't mean it's not functional. It's functional to make us feel better in the future, maybe. Yeah, it's it's a it's a curious thing because the whole idea is to resolve your ambivalence. It seems like like I want to work on this yep. so that I don't feel this way anymore. And the people who are all positive are like, I already did that, right? So 
It could just be yep. that like th- that is the pinnacle. Whereas I wondered if there's like are there advantages to ambivalence? I, I guess you're saying so they motivate you to do better. But is there any way where yeah. you'd say like, well, actually, what you should hope for is to achieve a level <laughs> of at least some ambivalence, oh. and maybe not. Maybe it's like the the pinnacle is pure positivity. You, you know, um, uh, I've always been interested in relationships and just observing other people's relationships, even you know, fictional characters. Just I, I'm reminded of I was a big fan of uh, the show Cheers. Mm. I don't know if you ever sure. watched the show Cheers. There was a just a rocky, tumultuous relationship between Sam and Diane always, and they they just they they seem to enjoy that. Uh, I wonder if there's individual differences, and some people sort of like the thrill ride of the roller coaster. You know, you don't get the real highs unless you have the real lows, and so uh, it it could be that there are different types of people. Some people, I would imagine, like uh, I don't want that. Give me, I'll take just a little bit of positive, as long as they don't have to have a lot of negative. And some people are like, no, 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 I got to have the high positive. And and if that means I have to have the high negative coming along with it, then that's possible. So I, I would wonder about maybe individual differences there. Be an interesting, uh, interesting study. Well, if I weren't worried about licensing, I would drop the Cheers theme right here because that would be <laughs> a perfect outro. <laughs> uh, yeah. As a way of wrapping up, what I wondered is if, you know, a lot of this makes a lot of sense to me. It's just as a way to understand how people navigate these relationships. I assume people are also interested in like prescriptive advice. Like what what does this mean for me and how I will conduct myself in relationships? Does anything from your program of work strike you as like, here's what I would tell people if they have questions about their relationship? Um, well, questions about the relationship. I, I mean, I, I, I think that ultimately we, we don't have the evidence yet to, 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 to show this, but, uh, we want to be able to say that people can access this information. Um, they just have to, you know, the, the question is, what do you tell them to do? Like you're saying, I mean, we can't pay everybody 500 <laughs> bucks, right? Um, but tell them to listen to their gut uh, is is one possibility. I think people kind of know what that means or listen to that voice in the back of your head. Um and um, so that would be in, ter- in terms of like understanding their own relationship. And I also think that there's some things that people can do to preserve and protect their relationship based on this. So, for example, managing these sorts of associations is, is an important thing to do. Uh, I think, you know, we've got some work showing that these can be conditioned even by just pairing the partner with something that has nothing to do with the partner, but is positive anyway. So that's what happens when you go watch a great movie together. Now, my movie experience is shared with you. So pairing positive experiences with the partner and probably more than that, avoiding the pairing of negative experiences as much as you can, Uh, you know, uh, trying to, to minimize the extent to which you're around your partner when you're feeling terrible. I mean, I don't know. People are sick, right? You, you have to get sick. Your partner's going to help you. Is that a, I'm now associating you with, I think there's something around there about managing these sorts of associations and at least being careful to recognize it's not my partner's fault. I'm sick. And so I think that might be the sort of deliberative exercise to get people to, to sort of not make these associations. Cause you, you've done research like this, right? An experiment where you what I love about this is you're actually getting stimuli from people, right? Like you're tailored, like every survey, every experiment is tailored to that person who's coming into your lab. Is that basically right? Yes. <laughs> that sounds like yes. a nightmare to me, but kudos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And we're we're doing it again too. So uh, it's it makes it tough uh, for sure. We got to get pictures of everybody. So in this experiment, you're getting pictures of a partner and then randomly pairing yep. it with irrelevant things, but that people generally like. Irrelevant things that people generally like. You know, you had them all pilot tested. Then most of it, it turns out, is like baby animals <laughs> and food. <laughs> we asked people, what do, you, what do you like? It was showing people a bunch of pictures. What scored highest was baby animals and food. And and when you do that, what what is the consequence? It, what, what do you find? So what we found was that people maintain levels of satisfaction with their partner um, when we repeatedly pair their partner with with these uh, positive images. So we just show them a slideshow of their partner 
paired with either something really positive or something neutral. And the people that saw their partner paired with something positive show these sort of implicit associations uh, lasting longer. And we didn't just do it once because it's not like seeing your partner next to a baby duck is going to change my 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 attitude forever, of course. Um, but maybe it'll temporarily boost it. And we did this over every three days for like six weeks. And we showed a small effect where just people felt positively towards their partners uh, when we uh, paired those partners with this positive affect. And that's that's what we think is is going on in a relationship. People are just extracting associations um, with their partner. I'm happy and my partner's here. I'm not happy and my partner's not here, et cetera. So go get a baby duck. Bring it home. Always put it in the bathtub. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that is the, the guy, the secret to success, according to Jim. McCarthy. That's it. That's it. <laughs> well, I, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk about all this work. It, it was really great to catch up on it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it a lot. Alrighty, that'll do it for another episode of Opinion Science. Thank you so much to Jim McNulty for taking the time to talk about his work. As always, you can check out the show notes for a link to his website and links to the research we talked about today. Speaking of websites, I know a good one. Uh, it's Go ahead, type this in. It's www.opinionsciencepodcast.com. You saw that coming, right? <laughs> there you'll find all the past episodes of the show, uh, including transcripts for most of those episodes, links to the research articles that we talk about on all of them. You'll find a way to make a donation to the show, all sorts of stuff. Check it out. Um, also, make sure you're subscribed or follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And uh, I hope your 2024 has been going well so far. We're a couple weeks in. Mine's fine. Uh, I hope yours is fine, too. One quick thing. Um, if you listen to the best of 2023 episode a couple weeks ago, I said our big behavioral economics podcast series was coming out this month. Slight update. It's well on its way, but we've scooted that back to February 26th. So get that on your calendar. <laughs> you don't want to miss it. It's a five-part podcast series tracing this field of social science that boldly pushed back on standard assumptions in classic economic theory, presenting a bunch of compelling data and eventually shaping public policy and business practice around the world. So keep an ear out for that. But that's all for now. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you in a couple weeks for more opinion science. Bye-bye. 